0: This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. This morning, I'm uh, blessedly free from the uh, fog of any medication which is uh, very nice for a change. And um, uh, I I feel like saying that, uh, well, bearing in mind, when we uh, declare something in the the Chan lineage, it's best not to take it too seriously. But anyway, uh, I would say, although it's hard to believe, um, everything basically happens in the same place and the same time always. So you can do with that what you like. I would recommend that you or maybe just remind you that you don't have to believe it. In fact, it'd be better if you didn't. But you can um, uh, verify or dismiss that for yourselves. There was uh, some discussion in uh, yesterday's uh, seminar with my teacher, Uh, people were uh, kind of reminiscing about their um, arrival at Zen center. as the former abbot Zen used to pronounce it. For some reason, he never said Zen center. He would always say Zen center. (laughs) Anyway, there are various nice stories. And um, one person said she uh, came into the front hall there at 300 page street and the uh, tension uh reb anderson was there talking to somebody and there were a couple of other people around and they all ignored her except tension who turned and smiled at her and she was hooked so there are a variety of stories like that that people had and uh, i found myself thinking that um It wasn't, it wasn't my first visit to Zen Center, which was over when it was on, on Bush Street in Japantown. But one of, maybe my first visit to 300 Page was when I went to see Suzuki Roshi. And my first impression was how short he was. He came up from about here. And right away, I was a little off balance, I think. Like, supposed to be a giant figure. <laughs> and I was thinking that when people come to uh, maybe Dharma practice, or maybe particularly a place that belongs to the Zen lineage, if, if all is uh, in good order, the teacher will meet them directly, and see if metaphorically speaking, the person who has come will see them eye to eye. And I think often, from these stories, and my own experience, I gather that that's uh, very often not the case. So it's as though the person who is welcoming them is uh, looking at them directly. And the other person's gaze is somewhere. They're looking at something else. And I'm pretty sure that was the case uh, when I went to see Suzuki Roshi. And he he was looking up at me and I was looking down at him, but I was in search of something else than what was happening. And so sometimes people maintain that gaze which is kind of off somewhere and they usually don't stay they go and continue looking for whatever it was but in in my case after i talked with sigurish for a while i i sort of felt <clears throat> uh very calm and I was not a calm person especially at age 19 I'm not all that calm now but then I was really as my father said wound up like a $2 watch people don't wind watches up anymore but they did back in the day but I after uh, particularly after Tsukiroshi and I had no, I know I've told you, but you no, know, he showed me how to do a prostration. And then I, I asked him, I couldn't quite figure out the mudra. And so he showed me with his broken finger, how to do it. And after we chatted a while, he said, well, now we'll just sit. And I don't know how long that lasted. But after that, I felt really, maybe calmer than I had ever felt in my life. And I felt as though I was I didn't really appreciate it or understand what was happening, but I felt like I was meeting him where he was. And I was basically hooked. And sometimes uh, people will stay at a temple or practice place long enough for that meeting to happen. And then they're likely to remain. Otherwise, their gaze to the far horizon somewhere will lead them onward. I think when I went to see Tsukiroshi, I was perhaps hoping he would say something to me like, you know, everything happens at the same time in the same place, always, but he didn't. And nowadays, when I'm charged with meeting people, it's kind of my job. Periodically, the muse will urge me to say something like I just said. These are invariably throwaway remarks.
1: during zazen
0: i nearly said we dedicate the merit of this practice to the complete liberation of every sentient being but then i had the thought what if someone doesn't maybe someone wants to uh, not be so uh eager to give away the merit. Maybe they need it. So, okay, I won't say that. Ah, a serenade. So, uh, during, um, particularly during Zazen, maybe we can see from our place at the source that for instance, that music is emerging from the source. I, uh, being of a um, irascible disposition, I, I try to remind myself that when I'm walking down the street and someone is approaching with a device that is blasting music that I have not selected for my own enjoyment. And sometimes I'll just very briefly close my eyes and say, oh yeah, yeah, this is is the clouds, the magnificent clouds at the source. And that usually calms my temper. Perhaps uh, unwisely, I uh, recently undertook to continue my education by, as I rather too often do, getting an expensive book. This being uh, a recent and I think quite expert translation of the last work of the great Tibetan 14th century Tibetan master Jeytsen Kapha. and um, it's basically a translation <laughs> translation of the Tibetan translation of the great Indian acharya Chandrakirti's work the um, Madhyamaka avatara so it's this thick. It must be almost a thousand pages. And I told myself, now you're going to finish this book, damn it. And of course, it proceeds in the traditional or one traditional fashion, uh, which is basically word for word. So it begins with the salutatory verse, which is like, now I salute the great to So now, now means blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, so it's like, oh, why did I do this? I know this is what the Tibetans do. So I'm trying not to get bogged down, but it is full of quite fascinating stuff. And Chandrakirti, as you may know, was, uh, oh, I always forget, maybe it's 5th century, 6th century, something like that. Maybe a little later. But he is one of the great uh, members in Nagarjuna's lineage. And uh, the most eloquent expounder of the Prasangika Madhyamaka path, which as you may know, is the one favored by the Dalai Lama's gang there in Tibet. And they, of course, uh, present the teaching of emptiness as the supreme teaching of Buddha Dharma. So this whole work is Chandrakirti elaborating on this theme. Uh, Not to get too technical, but I feel like sometimes I should at least refer to my expensive Sanskrit education by throwing out the occasional Sanskrit word. So, as you may remember, uh, Nagarjuna's um, probably safe to say his masterwork is the Mula Madhyamika Karika, the the fundamental verses on the middle way. And Chandrakirti's work on that work is called the Madhyamaka Avatara, which uh, I think is often translated as the entry into the middle way. Could also mean something like the embodiment of the middle way. Uh, so, anyway, this is a, uh, a lengthy examination of this supreme teaching of Buddha Dharma. <clears throat> and I'm announcing my intention of finishing it, though I may not live that long. Anyway, one of the early teachings in that uh, text is.
2: Um,
0: a um, an appreciation of the practice of Karuna or compassion, which of course is one of the two main underpinnings of Buddha Dharma. The other being, prajna or wisdom, and as a kind of uh, skillful means, the suggestion is that uh, we foster compassion by actively cultivating these uh, three perspectives. The one. Uh, you may have heard of already. One is uh, to see all beings as our relatives. Uh, Relying on the teaching that uh, pretty much all beings have, at one time or another, been a parent, a child, a sibling, and so on. So to see all beings as relatives. Oh, look, there's my beloved such and such from X number of births ago. And the next one is to see all beings uh, uh, with endearment. So not only our relatives, but dear to us. Now for most of us sentient beings, or at least for me, there are some for whom I may make an exception as just being a little too challenging. Hopefully, I will work up to being able to see that person with endearment. But not yet. So In that respect, it's often easier to look at beings in the aggregate, rather than a succession of individuals, each of whom must pass the endearment test. That's maybe a bit much. But how about all beings as dear to us? That's a little easier, actually. And the third way is to regard all beings as without Enduring nature. So. Empty. Fundamentally empty. Arising and passing away and completely ungraspable sea. Of being non being and so forth. These are three enactments of compassion. And it's very typical to begin a great philosophical work, such as the one I'm describing, with uh, a, first of all, a gesture of uh, gratitude and appreciation to the teacher. And then a discussion of the the crucial nature of compassion. Without which, the... uh, You know, Buddhist teaching can start to seem rather cold and heartless. So those three perspectives are are something to meditate upon. We make our way. Plus, you can also experiment with whether or not it uh, seems like you can trust the notion that everything is happening at once, right here. Again, I don't say you have to. I'm just tossing that out. Something else that uh, came up in the uh, seminar was, uh, um, we're uh, reading a um, a translation that's about to appear in print of um, a work by uh, Kiyun Senji. Have you heard of Kiyun Senji? Yun is, I think, the uh, fifth abbot, Bayeiji, and he wrote this uh, work, uh, which is basically uh, his response to um, the chapters in Dogen's own master work, the uh, Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And one of those chapters, which I'm not sure if we read or not, I guess we must have, which is uh, called, um, it's often translated as uh, pilgrimage. Henzan is the Japanese word. And Giyon Zenji is Includes, I think, uh, someone maybe it was Shui uh, Feng's remarks about pilgrimage. Might have been Shui Feng. Anyway, somebody, when asked, "Well, what uh, you know, what sorts of pilgrimages have you been on? What is your pilgrimage practice?" And Shui Feng or whoever it was says. Oh, my pilgrimage is uh, just sit, body, mind, fall away. That's my pilgrimage. And uh, that's kind of our pilgrimage too. If I could only uh, make one journey that would be it. So it happens, I've been to a couple of other pilgrimage places, like, uh, Tibet and China and Japan. So I am very grateful for those opportunities. But if I could choose one journey It would be just sit, body-mind fall away. Uh, Body-mind fall away, just so you know, it's not different from everything happening right here, right now. Also, just uh, coincidentally, my uh, back is much better today for some reason. And uh, I was able to sit Padmasana again, which is not very important, but kind of entertaining. We're, uh, we're all set up to do the uh, memorial for the late Abbot, Nissan Dainé. So I hope you can join us for that. Um, brief occasion to express gratitude to our founding teacher here at One Mountain Temple. Uh, before we do that, maybe you have some question or comment. Yes.
2: At the beginning of your talk, you said that you were, you didn't make the statement
0: about dedicating the merit because some people might want to hold on to theirs. And I'm wondering if you were thinking of that in the sense of um, kind of like your own needs need to be met before you're able to be helpful to others or putting your oxygen mask on before you put it on to the child? Well, uh, honestly, I didn't exactly have those thoughts, although it's perfectly valid. Um, as, uh, Persons on the bodhisattva path, it's kind of necessary to uh, practice as Japanese call it echo, which is transferring the merit. But, um, I don't know uh, if we make a practice of that, which we do, Pretty much every ceremony involves a transfer of merit. But I think, you know, some still will accrue to us. I think that's inevitable. But uh, uh, I think it was a while before, uh, when I was drawn to Buddhism, it was a while before I heard about merit to begin with. And then it was a while before I heard about, oh, we, we give that away. And as you may know, the one of the great accumulations that the Bodhisattva needs to create in order to complete the path to Buddhahood is the accumulation of merit. So, as they say, some accrues to us anyway. So we don't have to worry about that. It's also not clear even if we wanted to hang on to it that we could. So no one really knows what those mechanics are anyway. Maybe the Buddhists do, but I don't know about anybody else. I don't. Yes. I
2: was also thinking a bit about your, um, you know, not uh, dedicating matter or transferring marriage. I think if I had any to transfer, of course, I'd, you know, there's a little piece in it. It's like, well, I'd like to cash it in for my own. <laughs> so my own pleasure, please, my own vacation. Um, but I, I would say, I think we have to do it all the time or else our society doesn't even work. Mm-hmm. The reason that you can walk out the front door 99% of the time without being bludgeoned to the other shop, Or robbed from, or beaten is because people are giving the gift of sort of the merit that they have, Mm and I don't think societies really work without it. I don't know, it's just something I keep thinking about, and I always think about that. I've watched that PBS Buddha Life of Buddha story too many times with that astrophysicist "You can't be an ocean of happiness in a sea of misery," and I think yeah, having both pleasurable, you can give it away really when you
0: anything. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Dukeshi has that, I guess that talk, you know, where he he takes his glasses off and says, these aren't really mine, but you let me have them. I think that's basically what you're referring to in a very broad sense. Yeah. We let each other have a life. And when we don't, things go pretty badly for everyone. It's always sad to me that people
2: feel differently. You know, it's sort of like trying It's not very warm and pleasant. It's even like the economy, like the wealthy who think, I can afford all the wealth. And then it's like the economy then doesn't work mm-hmm. if people aren't also taking part in that love. It all falls apart.
0: Yeah. Speaking of all this electronic equipment we have here, the, I think the, not the most current, but the last issue of the New Yorker has a completely ghastly article about, is it cobalt mining in Africa? Here we have, you know, our little cell phones and stuff. And what is gone through to get that like cobalt, which is particularly important, out of the ground is appalling. So I suppose we could all stop buying electronics, but that doesn't seem very likely. So maybe we can do something else.
2: Something to be said for a mud hut.
0: There is. But a lot of the people who live in mud huts, they're not really happy about it. (laughs) I'm afraid a lot of what's going on in Africa in particular is still the, the, the toxic remnant of colonialism. Seems like no matter how long ago that was, it can't be outrun. Well, shall we do our little ceremony now? At least we can say thank you to Isan. Reverend Mio may ask a question? Having done so, we can hand off the merit. Um, Yes?
1: Uh, Um, I'm sorry, I have the photo thing because I'm holding it close to my ear. The sound is a little bit low, but I think this is a question that um, Isan would be able to know and understand better than most people. So uh, yesterday, uh, my therapist, the person who I, you know, kind of knows my stuff, belongs to a clinic that also does acupuncture and massage. And so I went there yesterday to get a lymph system kind of circulation thing going. And um, uh, it's embarrassing to say in a public setting, but I found myself through the massage getting aroused. And so there was this thing of like the therapist seemed kind of like the or the massage therapist seemed like they were kind of aware or like the, I mean they could not have not been aware of it but they, it was sort of uh, it's a very difficult thing to do to sort of say like do you want to stop do you want me to change do you like I I, did, I had I didn't know what to do and of course I wanted it to be something I wanted to do. Uh, and so it's a very, it's a very awkward situation. I, I don't know if you have any guidance for that, but anyway.
0: Well, I think that's uh, relatively common and that it's part of the professionalism of the therapist uh, to so to speak, work around it, not be tripped up. And if the patient or client seems to be in significant distress, then maybe that can be addressed. But if the the, therapist is insufficiently professional in terms of his or her also inner work that he or she or they have done, then it could be difficult. But otherwise, it's just, you know, ignore it. Thank you. There are, of course, places where that's encouraged, but that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Okay, we'll do our ceremony now. Please take good care of yourselves.